Welcome to SeatWorks, a podcast produced by the curriculum and training team at the Center on Education and Training for Employment, a translational research center on Ohio State's campus. We work where research meets reality. I'm your host, Farah Allen, a program coordinator at the center. This series of podcasts focuses on workforce development and will feature discussions about preparing an organization for implementation or modification of a training program. To learn more about our work, you can visit our website, CETE, that's C-E-T-E O-S-U If you've listened to previous episodes, you might be familiar with Tracy LePicky, the Associate Director of Operations and Strategic Initiatives, and also the Program Director for the Curriculum and Training Team at the Center. Here, you'll hear Tracy talking with Bridget McHugh, who serves as a psychometrician for the Assessment Services Program at the Center, and whose past work includes creating assessments for Fortune 500 companies. Bridget's current work includes creating valid and reliable assessments for employees and students in the skilled trades. Hi, Bridget. Thank you so much for joining me today to talk about assessment. To get us started, would you give us a general sense of what assessment is? So, assessment sounds like this big fancy word, but assessment is actually all around us. Say you're opening up an old uh, copy of Cosmo or you're online and you're at a place like Buzzfeed. When you take a personality quiz or one of those quizzes that tells you what drink would I be? That's technically an assessment because it's measuring something. It's assessing something. So when we talk about assessment, we're talking about a measure. Typically, we're talking about a measure of what's called a latent construct. So um, a construct is like a concept or idea that you've defined. And when I say latent, that means that there's not a direct scale or a direct measure for that construct. For example, when you can take temperature, you can take someone's height, someone's weight, those all have direct measures latent constructs do not. There's no temperature for personality, for example. If you've ever had like an injury, a pain scale, say you're uh, recovering from an injury or something and you go see a physical therapist or you go see a doctor, they're probably going to rate, have you rate things on a scale of one to five. And we refer to that as a scale because it's quantifying that latent construct of pain The other key thing when you're dealing with a latent construct is you're trying to quantify the levels on that latent construct through indicators. Going back to the pain scale example, you might be asked not just how much pain you feel. You know, you've seen the the smiley face scale, the zero, you have a big smiley face all the way at the 10. You have someone who is doing the complete opposite of smiling. They look like they're in incredible pain. When we're measuring knowledge and skills, we're applying the same kind of model. We need to look at the knowledge and skills needed to do a job. And then we're trying to find a way to quantify levels on those knowledge and skills, usually through a written test where you get a score. Now, just as a note, some companies do look at personality or they look at people doing specific behaviors. We typically look at knowledge and skills, but that is something that some companies do. For example, with customer service roles, they might 
measure your personality traits because certain personality traits are really important for customer service roles. So Bridget, based on what you just described, uh, specifically as it relates to our work at the Center on Education and Training for Employment, where we are focused on developing tests and assessments relative to job knowledge and skills, how do we know we have identified the correct job knowledge and skills when getting ready to, to create a test? What does that verification look like? The reason we're measuring knowledge and skills or some people who do things like personality, it's because those are needed in order to complete actual tasks within the job. So one of the first steps you do is you do something called a job analysis. And that's a whole other technique that I've done before, but it basically gets you a list of everything that every task that you do that the job requires, and then a a list of related knowledge areas and skill sets and sometimes abilities. Once you have this list, you then have to figure out the relative criticality to the job of each task. That's accomplished through a verification survey. And the point of that survey is to get, again, we're trying to quantify something that's latent. So that latent construct of criticality, we quantify that by getting ratings from people who fill out the survey and combine them into a criticality index based on things like importance. For example, say you are in the skilled trades, it's very important that you understand how to do things in important safety contexts. For example, if a fire occurs, that's something that you need everyone to know. It's not very frequent. So then we also have the other scale where we look at frequency. For example, knowing how to close out a service request. You might have procedures for uh, closing out the service requests or calling ahead of time. Some of the customer service stuff, you're gonna be doing that every day or several times a day. That's more frequent, so that also goes into criticality. And knowing the criticality of each task is very important because that allows you to weight how much content is on the test say criticality scores for each task range from one to 10. For something that's a nine, you want to have more items than something that's a six and then something that's a two. So they are creating uh, more weight that's proportionate to how critical something is. So we're also making sure that we don't just have, these are the important tasks or the critical tasks These are the the non-critical tasks. And then we just do a bunch of items for the critical tasks. You don't want things to be dichotomous. You want to have a very graded scale. That's how we verify what the job actually entails, but then also what really is more important for the job. So following the verification where you've identified the criticality of the tasks or aspects of the work, how does that information feed into developing a test blueprint? The test blueprint is basically the document that details how many items you can have, where it's directly proportional to the criticality. It's just translating that criticality score for each task into the number of items you want to put in your item bank, and ideally approximately how many would be on the final assessment. 
So your test blueprint drives how many questions, for example, how many questions you would you would generate um, in order to uh, develop a test that would get at or assess the body of knowledge that's been defined earlier in the process. The reason we call it a blueprint, oftentimes when you're looking at a blueprint for a house, you're interested how much of the house is taken up by the living room versus the master bedroom versus the bathroom. You can think of a blueprint the same way. You're kind of getting an idea of the percentage of items that will come from each task. And that's good too, because having the percentage, you can translate that into the number of items. If you're going to have a 200 item test, that works, but it's also helpful if you're going for shorter forms, you have multiple test forms where some might be a little shorter or longer. So you're more concerned about the actual proportion of items or the percentage of items, not just the number of items. I want to turn the attention slightly. We've talked about what knowledge and skill assessment is. How do you verify you have the right information that you're using to create your test? We've talked about what the function of the test blueprint is. Let's say now you've built the test. How do you know it's valid? How do you know it measures what it's supposed to measure? The first thing you have to understand when you go into validation is that how much validation work you want to do might depend on how high stakes the assessment is. But you also have to understand that validation is also a spectrum. It's almost like a measure of the quality and how good the measure is. You're trying to collect evidence of the degree to which the measure is valid. Now there's three different forms of validation. And the more evidence you have for each one or the more you've focused on at least one, the more valid you can assume the measure is. Oftentimes, you can do just one type of validation, but the higher the stakes and the more resources you have, the more types of validation you can tap into. So there's three main ones, and sometimes it's hard to distinguish them without getting too theoretical, but I'll give you a little overview. Um, Content validity, we're thinking about our lists of tasks, knowledge and skills that we're trying to tap into. Content validity is the degree to which our evaluation technique basically measures all of those tasks. It's measuring what we intend to measure and nothing we don't want to measure. And then also, are we not measuring something that we don't want to measure? A big challenge is with a written test where you're answering multiple choice questions, you're going to probably be measuring a little bit of reading ability as well. Ideally, with content validity, you're not getting at any other skill set that isn't the required knowledge and skills to complete the tasks that you're concerned with. You're just getting at the knowledge and skills needed to complete those tasks. When you do this, it sounds more complicated than it is. A good way to get some content validity evidence is to basically have subject matter experts work through all the questions and give ratings. So remember quantifying a latent construct, we're trying to get an idea of how much each test question actually measures that task. Sometimes you might be working with content standards instead. This is what we want this test question to measure. To what degree does it measure it? And that gives you some content validity evidence. So that's one form of validation. Other type of validity that's more highly related is construct validity. 
this is related to content validity and it's like are we actually getting at the theoretical construct of interest not just how much of it not just how much of the content domain but are we actually measuring what we want to measure and not some other concept one thing you can think of is there's certain constructs that are pretty closely related say you have a new assessment and there's an underlying need for mechanical ability that goes into your scores for that assessment you might have people who are taking the first batch of the assessment then take another assessment that isn't measuring directly the same construct but is also kind of a more mechanically minded construct you're really testing is it measuring the construct by seeing if it's related scores on this assessment are related to scores on other assessments that it should theoretically be related to. You're not necessarily trying to measure the same thing twice, but you're trying to measure that your assessment has the theoretical connections it's supposed to have. Then the third major type of validity I'd like to discuss is criterion-related validity. This one's very important, but also very hard to measure. Even for high stakes assessment, you might not necessarily do it when you first introduce the assessment, but it is good to follow up if you can. The criterion is basically the end goal of what we consider success or good performance. When you're measuring knowledge and skills needed to be a good employee, you want your knowledge and skills that you're measuring that do this by, if you have a measure of actual performance, you can use that and correlate it. So performance appraisals work sometimes. Sometimes you might have another measure of the same construct if you're measuring performance more directly. And then the key is that you want to see, does my measure of the knowledge and skills needed to do the job predict performance in the future? So you might hire some employees using the new assessment, and then you look at how well they're doing on the job a year later. Or you can do something where you look at current employees and you give them all the assessment that you're using to hire people now. And you see, are the people who tend to do poorly on their performance appraisals, do they tend to score a little lower on the assessment? Are there people that are the low performers, for example, the people who may have not passed the assessment if they'd had to take it before getting hired? And then also, if you don't have a good performance appraisal system, sometimes you can use more direct measures of performance. So those are three broad areas you can focus on. Thank you, Bridget. I want to turn back to, you mentioned the stakes involved with assessment, and I believe you mentioned high stakes. Could you touch on what that topic is? What are the stakes in assessment? How does that impact maybe the type of assessment you choose or your approach to developing assessment? Thinking back to our Cosmo and BuzzFeed quizzes that are technically assessments, that's a good example of the lowest stake assessment you can think of. High stakes is when there are negative consequences for not doing well on the assessment or positive consequences for doing well. You're applying for a job and you have to take an assessment in order to get hired. That's one example. Sometimes you're in the same position and you have to take an assessment to be placed in a new series or be promoted. 
And then one we deal with quite a bit are credentialing exams. Credentialing exams are licensure exams, certification exams, and certificate programs. You have some kind of credential that allows you to be recognized for your skill set. And so there's a high motivation for you to do well on it. This changes two things. Again, the motivation is higher. You take a Cosmo quiz, you take a BuzzFeed quiz. If you don't like the answer, you don't have to share it to Facebook or tell anyone about it. And then that changes how much effort you put into the assessment. The other thing, though, is when your motivation is higher, you are more likely to cheat or try to unduly influence your score. This means that for high stakes assessment, you're very, very concerned with test security because A, that means that you have to look out for people while they're taking the test to make sure that they aren't cheating. Usually high stakes assessments are proctored. Someone is watching you take the assessment. The other thing that impacts validation is that the standards of how well that assessment measures the latent construct are higher. And one of the reasons is that when there are more negative consequences for that score on the assessment not being accurate, there are worse consequences for a false positive or a false negative. The false positive is someone doesn't have the knowledge and skills needed to complete the tasks for the job. And the measure, your assessment, is not precise enough, and it makes it seem as if they actually do have the knowledge and skills to successfully complete the job. The false negative is that someone actually is qualified. They have those knowledge and skills, but then the assessment makes it seem as if they are not qualified. So the more precise the test is, the more meaningful that score is, and the less likely you are to get a false positive and a false negative. There's also legal standards and usually accreditation standards as well that you have to follow. You want to make sure that your assessment isn't advantaging or disadvantaging a certain group. So adverse impact, you indirectly might be hiring fewer people or promoting fewer people or giving a certification to fewer people within a group. So this is when you can look at kind of two broad areas of the possibility of adverse impact. The more common one I've seen and dealt with is the decision. We talk about false positives and false negatives. Do you have more false negatives for a certain group? Are there more women who look like they actually are qualified and are actually not being hired, for example. And this is where thinking about content validation and construct validation, those two types of validity are also really important. If you have some kind of exercise and you're measuring something that's not really job relevant, or you're not measuring certain skill sets that are important for the job, then that impacts the preciseness of the measure and increases the chances of getting that false negative or false positive. That can really impact how much your assessment holds up in court if a group is disadvantaged. The other level you can look at to look at issues where your assessment is disadvantaging a group is actually at the exercise or test question level. 
So you're not just looking again at that decision. You might be looking at specific questions and you can get a little better idea of what content you might be measuring. For example, physical ability tests. Do you have an exercise on your assessment that is disadvantaging people who are shorter? And is it really necessary to have that exercise that focuses more on height than the actual job relevant task? Bridget, with the complexities that you describe, both within the high stakes aspect of assessment, as well as different components for different types of assessments, whether they're for certification or accreditation or some other purpose, it has me thinking about two things specifically, stakeholders, the folks who are involved in different levels relative to the testing, and then communication. I'm assuming communication to the different stakeholder groups, both in the test development process, as well as the test administration process, as well as the use of the results. Communication is important because it puts everyone on an even playing field. I guess probably one of the most extreme examples is coming into an assessment that you didn't realize you were going to have to take because no one told you. You can see knowing more about the assessment puts people on an even playing field. So it's incredibly important to get everyone to take the assessment in the correct manner, in the correct timeline, making sure that everyone knows about the assessment. So someone doesn't, for example, get a leg up, like they know the assessment content better than someone else. That impacts fairness. This means that you really also want to tell them the timeline to complete it and also the consequences of doing poorly. You want everyone to have the same level of motivation approximately. So you don't want some people to not realize that the assessment is going to impact their job or that they won't be able to get a certification or even something like they know they won't be able to get their certification if they don't pass, but they don't realize, for example, that they can only take it once a year. So you need to tell people about the consequences of doing poorly. It's also a good idea for people to have a good understanding of the grading scheme because it increases these perceptions of fairness and also the purpose. Communication is really important in part because of buy-in. You want people to believe the assessment works and also believe that the assessment is fair and most importantly, believe the assessment is valid and that its purpose makes sense for what you're using it for. Communication and getting more of that buy-in is really helpful for getting people motivated to take the assessment seriously. And then once they see the consequences of it, not feeling like the consequences are unfair because they think that the assessment isn't really worthwhile. A couple other things in terms of communication is you wanna help people understand the process so they think it's fair and also explain the results to them in a way that's meaningful and takes your audience into account. So someone who doesn't have an assessment background, you want to explain where this assessment came from and where they did poorly if you can and why, and not make it too technical. One of the best ways to get buy-in is to try to get some people who are stakeholders to be involved in actually developing the assessment. I talked a lot about getting validation evidence where you have people rate the test questions. That's one way you can get managers to come in and then they understand where this assessment is coming from. Another element is the job analysis. 
And then also even writing the test questions. Sometimes when you're writing a completely new assessment, instead of taking an off the shelf assessment and customizing it to the organization, you can get subject matter experts that are stakeholders to come in. A couple notes about what a stakeholder is, is basically anyone who gains or loses something based on the results of the assessment. The clearest example, these would be the test takers because those are usually the people that are most impacted. But remember how I was talking about managers and supervisors? What's gonna happen to the supervisor or manager of an employee who does poorly on an assessment or someone who really needs someone in the job and that person that they were expecting to get hired does poorly on the assessment? That's a stakeholder. Another thing is I talked about certifications and licensure exams. Oftentimes, there are certain functions within a business or other type of organization where someone needs that credential, that certification or licensure in order to perform their job. And if that employee fails that certification exam, the business is impacted. So people within that business are also stakeholders, people who run businesses where people are certified. And then also within a business, they also may have consequences if everyone within a department or a unit tends to do poorly on an assessment. So maybe you have an assessment that isn't as high stakes, but it is partly developmental. So for example, you can have a low stakes assessment that's at the end of training and a manager of a business unit finds out that all of his employees did really poorly on the post assessment for sexual harassment training. That might reflect really poorly on that unit. So there are some kind of indirect consequences and less severe consequences too sometimes that means that sometimes another stakeholder is in play. Another example for anyone who has had a child in school since the No Child Left Behind Act um, started, or someone who was in school in the last 20 years since the No Left Behind Act really brought testing into the forefront of education. The student is the test taker in a school when they take assessments that look at their learning, but that's really supposed to be a measure of the teacher's skill set. How well did they teach the student? Did they learn what they needed to learn? So there, the teachers are the stakeholders. What this means is that there are a lot of people who are impacted by an assessment, and when you're planning your assessment, you're developing your assessment, you're figuring out who to communicate things to, you really want to make sure that everyone has a seat at the table or at least someone who represents each one of those groups of stakeholders. And when you're thinking about assessments of employees, you can think about assessments that are internal to the organization, external to the organization, and this helps you understand where certifications come in. So internal assessments, we talked a little bit about selection assessments or assessments for training. And this is where the assessment is somehow directed by leadership within the organization that the employee works for. This is where you have selection exams to pre-screen job applicants. I talked a little bit about developmental assessments are another one. Those are pre-tests at the beginning of training and post-tests, for example. It helps you know 
how effective your training program is. Performance appraisals are technically a form of assessment, even though they aren't what we think of as a paper and pencil test. Qualifying assessments for promotions and what you can get from all these examples is that when you have an internal assessment, that tends to be more customized and specific to the tasks needed for that particular job at that organization. So an example is, say you have an electrician here at Ohio State University. There's certain electrical tasks that are specific to our organization, from things that come up in a dorm to things that come up, for example, at the med center. OSU, if they have an assessment, it's going to be more custom to the tasks that come up in that context. An electrician that does house calls or the electrician that's on staff at a large corporate headquarters, they might have tasks that are more tailored to that organization's needs. So internal assessments are going to have more of those tasks, and that's often why people use internally directed assessments. Now, external assessments are certifications or other credentialing exams. When I talk about external assessments, think of anything that's not directed by the organization. So certificate programs, that's where you take some kind of training and you get a certificate saying that you pass the training and it's usually managed by a third party organization. Then certification programs, you can get specific certifications and types, different types of electrical work, for example, certain types of skilled trades. And then also licensure exams, those tend to be managed more. There's large boards or licensure entities, and there's usually more of a legal element to there where you can't practice unless you have that licensure. These tend to be more at the occupational level rather than a specific job level within an organization. Licensures for nurses or doctors, that's more at the occupation level and then this means that they tend to be more portable and they may or may not be paid for by employers. Many certifications or other external assessments, such as credentialing exams, they could be taken by an employee that is trying to get into an occupation or they know they have to have that certification exam or that other credentialing exam in order to get a job or do any functions of the job. That's a good distinction to make. Um, and it's very important when you're thinking about planning the assessment is getting the purpose, why you're making the assessment and what type of assessment you're really aiming towards. Thank you, Bridget. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me about assessment and the work that you do at the center and how that work can be customized for organizations. Thank you for taking the time to listen today. We hope you enjoyed it and will share with your colleagues and friends. If you'd like more information on this topic, you can contact us at go.osu.edu slash Ohio State for work. See our description for more details. Be well and bye for now. Thank you.